You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, as part of a much larger group, we took both of our families on a, a two-night camping excursion over the weekend. Well, two nights for us. Right. You were only there for one night. How are you recovering? I'm doing all right. You know, I feel like uh, this was one of the first camping trips that I think I've been on with my kids where I started to see, wait a minute, we can actually do this now. We're not like just crying and freaking out in the woods as opposed to crying and freaking out at home. We were actually camping and, dare I say, having a good time. Yeah. No, this was actually my entire brood's first full camping trip, like the first time we've taken everyone on a camping trip. It turned out to be funner than I thought it would, though we are still right in the middle of like uh a camping trip just being an excuse for everyone to cry in the woods instead of cry at home. Yes. Well, one thing I feel like we have to discuss here, though, is the tent that you and your family brought. Because I thought the tent that we had, that my wife got from REI, which I believe the REI website described as palatial. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, okay, this is the biggest tent I've ever seen. Uh, and almost a little, like, embarrassing to put it up because it's so enormous. Like, you're obviously doing a specific type of camping when you're doing, when you're putting up a tent like this. And glamping. then I see you. You're glamping. You are glamping. And then I see you and you come in with the tent that is like the deluxe version of that tent. Like, your daughter told me she, she looked at our tent when you guys got there and she was like, our tent's bigger than that. And I was like, okay childlike exuberance here is she's getting carried away and then i see you actually put up your tent she was totally telling the truth well you guys have i believe the kingdom six okay sure and we have the kingdom eight which i think people can people can fact check this i think is the biggest camping tent that you can get like on the open market you if you want to go out open market (laughs) if you want to go out and get like a wall tent like you're uh like you're a, a legion of soldiers of legionnaires. Yeah. And you want to like get a, a, a basically like a, a carnival tent and put that up and have your family stay in that. I'm sure you can get a bigger tent, but the kingdom eight from REI is that's as big as a, a regulation camping tent comes. <laughs> so if I want like the kingdom 10, I got to go black market. Yeah. You got to uh, get on the dark web to I, get that. I feel like if that's the kingdom eight, the kingdom 10, I, I'll just sell my house and live in that. I, yes. The kingdom 10 is just your house. That's, that's what that's about. <laughs> Uh, how you doing on Fletch? You got to get into Fletch yet, or are you gonna you gonna wait since you could read Fletch in about two days? Yeah, I haven't started rereading Fletch yet, but uh, I'll get there. I, I love me some of the Fletch books. Everyone knows we're doing a, a co-main event podcast book club episode that will be for all listeners, not just uh, patrons of the show, but all listeners. We're gonna read Fletch by Gregory McDonald. It's a it's a heck of a book. It's a quick read. It's a fun read. It's different from the movie, which is one of the things I'm looking forward to discussing on the book club episode. So don't think you're going to pull a fast one. Yeah, don't think that for a second because one of my favorite things to do during this book club episode is going to be to basically shit on the movie and on Chevy Chase for fucking it up. Don't think you're going to not read the book and just watch the movie and roll in here like a college freshman thinking you're going to be okay. You will not be okay. You will be exposed. You will feel like a horse's ass. (laughs) sending us your comments about how funny Fletch is. No, 
It ain't like that. He will see right through you. You know what we should do? Let's set a date. Okay. For that when we're going to record the book club episode. I've got this on my computer. How about Friday, August 31st? Oh, I like it. The last uh, day of August. It'll set people up right before, what is it, Memorial Day weekend? Right. The following uh, weekend. We're kind of saying farewell to summer. That's right. Wrapping up summer with the uh, CME book club. One last big blowout bash in which we discuss a book we all read. So you got some time to go out and get Fletch. Some people have been uh, hitting us up on Twitter that they just went to the damn library and got themselves uh, hardback editions of Fletch and they're reading those. Uh, You can pick up there's a grip of used paperbacks available on Amazon. Yeah, for like $2 a piece. The uh, Kindle edition will be available again on Amazon starting August 7th. So at this point, you got no excuse. No. Just I- jump on it. Read Fletch with us. We're all going to have a good time. Uh, ben, if the kids want to donate or join the club at the at the Patreon, where do they go to do that? They go to patreon.com slash co-main event, and they get access to all kinds of fun things, Chad. Like, for instance, the live video stream of this podcast that is happening right now. Yep. Uh, also, original works of serialized noir fiction with an MMA theme, which uh, I realize that's that's for a very specific slice of our audience. But you know, uh, the people who like it, Really like it. I said this before. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again right now. I think it would be fun for us to do this book club episode about the book Fletch and then maybe at a later date uh, live stream the film. Okay. Maybe for Patreons. All right. So people can get a firsthand glimpse at how different the act, the book is from the movie. Okay. Just I want you to be prepared. I have some shit to say about the movie. I, the movie no, makes me angry. You have made that clear. And we're not even getting into Fletch Lives. We're not even talking about no, that. No. Fucking Chevy Chase, man. Who does he think he is? We got music again this week from our friend Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear on the podcast, you can check him out over on soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. And again, as you all know by now, that's the word beats with a Z. Beats. Everybody knows that by now. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, well, so much for Shogun Hua's light heavyweight title shot. And in round number two, Nick Newell gets his chance to make it to the UFC this week, and he'll do so on DWTNCT. Seemingly because some people at the UFC are nervous about his body, which I guess sort of makes him the anti-Ronda Rousey in Dana White's eyes. Oh, wow. And in round number three, Alvarez versus Poirier 2 comes our way Saturday in a surefire slugfest, but let's just be honest, we all hope that it's the main event of a show that's less than seven hours long. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Patrick Ryan, who writes, UFC Hamburg. Okay, this is kind of a long, I'm just going to say this before I start. This is kind of a long one. It's going to get us started on sort of a down slash depressing note. But but we got to talk about this, right? Feels, feels necessary. We got to talk about this. From Patrick Ryan. UFC Hamburg was one of the worst sports viewing experience I've ever subjected myself to. Not because it tied the record for most decisions on a UFC card at 10. Not because it featured an interchangeable cast of European fighters in bouts of dubious import. Now, that's, there's a turn of phrase. Yeah. Good job. Uh, not even because it turned out, turned into an all too expected inter, uh, mineable slog of an FS1 interminable. call. Oh, interminable. Sorry. Uh, Jesus it, Christ. It was while watching Shogun Hua's brain get pummeled into jelly that something crystallized for me. And I think it sums up something very rotten about MMA and the combat sports enterprise. Nothing we didn't already know, but this is a cannibalistic business that practices decorum and lacks humility. I love MMA because of the humans that do it. 
and the metaphor for life. Little bits of grand drama, incredible aspirations, hard work, the highs and lows of defeat and victory. Shogun embodies for uh, this for his legendary Pride Grand Prix showing alone. Unfortunately, he also embodies this due to still slugging it out well past his prime. It's one thing to see someone take a heartbreaking loss. It's another to see a guy miss his own Hall of Fame induction so he can prepare for an unnecessary fight that the promotion completely buries. Okay. There's a lot to unpack here. There is. Let's start first at the six-hour and 40-minute broadcast for UFC Hamburg, which begs the question, what, who is this even for at this yeah. point? Okay, I wondered the same thing in kind of my post-fight notes here where I sat through the entire thing because I had to as a condition of my employment. If I hadn't, though, if I had, I would have just DVR'd this and then gone back to see – even if I had meant to sit down and be like, oh, here we go. I'm looking forward to a little Sunday afternoon MMA, which can be a cool thing. When it's gone, when it's happened with the Fight Pass cards, I have enjoyed that in the past because those Fight Pass events, they click right along. I mean, anytime you got 10 decisions, uh, you're going to end up with a little bit of a slog kind of feeling. That part's inevitable, but you're also not going to have to sit through as many commercials as you do on Fox Sports 1. But I would have gotten maybe like halfway through this and then been like, you know what, I'll go do something else for a while, and then I'll check back in. I'll look and see on the internet which fights are worth watching and check back in, because it does not seem like the UFC is putting together an event like this really expecting a lot of people to sit through the entire thing from start to finish, which is weird. Yeah, it's a dramatically different approach than the UFC has ever had in the past, right? Well, and it's just a, a dramatically different approach than any other pro sport has. Like, the NFL does not put together its schedule by thinking like, all right, nobody's going to sit through a full game. That's that's unreasonable. We're just like creating hours and hours of content. They they are expecting people to sit through full games. They expect people to sit through a full Sunday of them every week, and lots of people do. It, no one else does it this way, where it's just kind of assumed. Well, you won't watch the whole thing. Yeah, I would actually like to get a straight answer from someone at the UFC, like a, a straight and true answer. As to what their what is going on with the programming right now, like what their uh, philosophy is, what the what the goal is, uh, content. Right, that's yeah. what I think it is. Just but, uh, you know, and content. obviously it would be impossible for to get uh, an honest answer from anybody on the UFC about that. But I just kind of want to be a fly on the wall for like the internal discussions because what we are seeing now is so dramatically different from what the product was. When a lot of people, including myself, and I assume many of the people listening to the show, fell in love with it. It's just, it's just like almost a completely different animal now. Uh, and it doesn't feel like it has evolved or gotten better. It feels like it has merely changed into a different thing. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about reading the Chuck Liddell autobiography, and you read the Tito Ortiz autobiography for the recent... Uh, CME book club that we did uh, for patrons of the show was that back in those days, the, the Liddell autobiography, I believe, was published in early 2008. Back in those days, there was a sense, or at least the company line around the UFC, was that they were stewards of the sport and that they were like building this thing that would last into the future, that this was just the beginning and uh, the, the sport of MMA and the UFC, by extension, were going to just get bigger and better as time went on. And now, with the UFC about to end its broadcast deal with Fox Sports and move over to ESPN, it feels very much to me like uh, the Fertitas got their money and got out. Like Dana White got a lot of money 
and now the new owners at WMEIMG are just trying to get their money. It feels yes. like a, I mean, this is okay. Cashing out right. is what's happening. Given that it's, you know, it was always a, a capitalist enterprise. They were never here to make friends. So that's okay. <laughs> but at the same time, it doesn't feel like anybody in charge is uh, caring for the future of the sport or like even thinking about it. At this point, it's like make our money back, make as much cash as we possibly can before we get out, before we personally get out. Yes. That feels like exactly what's happening. And, and that, like that's it has, a, just a different thing. That's like a different thing that has ever happened in this sport before. It, and frankly, is not a recipe for success in terms of what happens down the road. Well, it seems like the definition of what success looks like has just changed so much. So, like the this idea now where the UFC has just basically become like we are a content producer. That's our thing. Hours and hours of fights. And we can produce them relatively cheaply as compared to other like pro sports products. There's really no limit to the number of UFC events we can have. We can have one every weekend, even if there's ones like this where people are going, looking at the card going, I don't see too much there that I care about. Maybe the top two fights, I'll just DVR those, come back to them. The UFC doesn't care. We're just churning out content. The problem with that though, is that like you are just training so many of your fans to ignore you. Yeah. And that's what you see with a lot of these kind of fight cards where people are, are kind of like in the, the mid-range where they're not quite shit-eating wild men. They're not quite the casual fans who only want to hear about Conor McGregor. They're somewhere in the middle there. But they, they are aware enough to know maybe that a UFC event is happening, but also aware enough to, to look at it and be like, ah, this doesn't seem like it's something I want to sit through a bunch of FarmersOnly.com commercials just to see. Yeah. Uh, and I, it seems like it's hard to get those people back once you kind of get them conditioned to being like, the UFC is a thing I ignore except for two to four times a year. Yeah. Given the current landscape and the state of the sport, it doesn't feel to me like you are uh, producing a lot of new shit-eating wild men. Like, when we got into the sport, that was kind of the thing. And those were the people, frankly, who kept the sport alive during the times that, you know, it got kicked off cable, it was off pay-per-view, et cetera, et cetera. It was because it had this, like, rabid, hardcore fan base, dudes who would hop in a minivan and drive 10 hours to Vegas, which is a dude that dudes, I used to you, be. You, you seem like you're describing some specific dudes yeah. right there. We would we would hop in a minivan and drive to Vegas and go to the – spend the, like, you know, four or five days there, go to all the events uh, and go to the, go to the fights and then drive home, you know, marathon sesh on Sunday – it doesn't feel like those people are really being produced anymore. It doesn't feel like, you know, well, if they are, if those people are out there, if, if like there's a new shit-eating wild man born today, and he is like, yes, give me seven hours of UFC Hamburg, I'm going to watch the whole fucking thing, and I'm going to love it. I don't know those people. Yeah. And it seems like they are a person who is, is like has a different life than me, for sure. One thing I would note about Patrick Ryan's point is, because I've thought the same thing about the way this sport does, where it'll take... Take the old lion, throw him to the young lion. Right. And that's just a, a practice that's been in combat sports for a long time. That is one of the things that I was struck by uh, back when I was reading all the stuff about like the history of bare-knuckle boxing and uh, about the life of John L. Sullivan is how often one of their common practices was, well, one of the old fighters needs help financially because it, it was an exploitative sport even back then. So we'll throw a benefit for him. And the way the benefit would usually work is you would usually fight in the main event of your own benefit. Whoa. And you would usually fight one of the young up-and-comers who would probably beat your ass. And John L. Sullivan was on the like ass-beating uh, side of several people's benefits as he was coming up. And that was just kind of the way it worked. 
That maybe is just a constant of the fight game that we can't seem to get rid of. There's another aspect of this that speaks to the end of the Patrick Ryan email where he talks about watching Shogun Hua carry on too long and eventually get knocked out by Anthony Smith in the main event of UFC Hamburg. And I know we're going to talk more about Shogun versus Smith in the first round of the show. But I also wanted to say, like, the stuff that we all just, that we just talked about is kind of depressing to talk about. Like, the sport feeling like it is eased, at least going through a period of decline, whether or not is like a systemic defining decline. We don't know yet whether or not is a bubble and things will start to trend back up. We don't know yet, but it is extra like, uh, discouraging and depressing to see a dude like Shogun Hua get knocked out by Anthony Smith on a card that is essentially a throwaway piece of content, right? Like we're not, it's not even a benefit. For Shogun Hua. It's just like a middle of the day stock piece of content that we can, that we can put on our streaming services forever. And that, if this was like the end of Shogun Hua's career, which we don't know that or think that that's going to be, but if it were, like, think about that, man. Like, yeah. a guy who at one time was the greatest fighter, uh, in the sport, maybe the number one pound for pound fighter on the planet for a very short time gets knocked out by this young up-and-comer on a show that, like, the point of it is not even the show. The point of it is just to own the rights of it for later. Yeah, we had a date on the calendar, basically. All right, enough of that. Next question this week from uh, Tracy Dickinson. She writes, In a card that went a little overboard with trying to break the most decisions on a fight card ever record, Dan Hardy and John Gooden made me realize how much I wish the UFC would have them calling some cards other than just international ones. Yes. Just when I almost lulled to sleep by the monotony of the let's see what happens when we leave it totally in the hands of the judges' fights, one of them breaks out some type of interesting commentary on the fights that piques my interest. During one of the many unanimous decisions, I believe I heard John Gooden say something about, quote, a beautiful vocabulary of punches, (laughs) which made me think I should appreciate what I was seeing more than I did. Are they underused, and could they be a breath of fresh air in some North America cards at times, or have I just uh, become delirious after watching, like, 13 hours of fights? Well, I mean, you might also be delirious from watching 13 hours of fights, but I I totally agree. I enjoy watching that commentary team. And I admit it took me a little bit of a period of adjustment because I'm used to this combination of like a morning, a weekend morning fight event from somewhere in Europe or at least somewhere, you know, overseas, John Gooden, Dan Hardy, and then when I start to sit through the usual fight or Fox Sports 1 pacing, I'm like, my brain rebels at it a little bit. I'm used to just going right along from one fight to the next one, the fight pass event, because everything about this felt like a fight pass event. Both the caliber of fighters that we had, the the location, the timing, the, the commentary team, everything except for the fact that you then had to sit through all the usual commercials and crap on Fox Sports. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I agree. Just hearing those guys call fights, I wish that they were a more regular part of this, but it also seems like the UFC has just decided, like, they're not setting foot on American soil for some reason. <laughs> I like John Gooden and Dan Hardy because they're like the only change-up UFC broadcast team that the company has, right? Like, we, I love John Anik. I feel like John Anik right now probably the best play-by-play guy in the in the sport. Uh, you've got what feels like a completely interchangeable cast of color commentators who are actual fighters. Uh, you got Joe Rogan and Jimmy Smith uh, who are both great at what they do. You got the new guy. The new play-by-play guy whose name I don't know. I mean, that's the best sign of success for him is that we don't need to learn his name yet. 
because we're not mad at him. But it all feels very much of a kind, right? You can yeah. give me John Anik, Jimmy Smith, and Dominic Cruz, and it's not going to feel all that different from an event that has the new guy, Joe Rogan, and uh, Daniel Cormier. It's, you're going to be – you're watching the UFC. Yeah. When you watch Gooden and Hardy – it feels different. It feels a little different. They bring, not just because like they're both uh, British and they like, you know, you use different turns of phrases as Tracy Dickinson points out here. Gum shield. They're the only time you're going to hear gum shield in the UFC. It just makes it like, it's like a, in baseball, it's like a change up pitch. It just for whatever reason makes the whole broadcast feel a little bit different. And like we just said in our lengthy discussion about uh, Patrick Ryan's email, anything you can do to make it feel a little bit different for me. Man, do it. Please, goddammit, do it at this point. Because we're watching, we're spending our whole lives watching this shit at this point. Like, do whatever you can to make it feel special for me. Yeah. But at the same time, I say there's no hope. It's yes, if, if there could be a breath of fresh air of some North American fight cards. Sure they could, but there's just almost zero hope that that will ever happen. Next question comes from Colin from Chicago. He writes, so late last night, a certain Cormier, comma Daniel tweeted out an Instagram post or something on social media. Regardless. Did my grandfather send this? <laughs> he basically said that he and a certain Mauler would never dance again. Their first fight was super fun, but I get it that DC is in money fight mode with retirement looming. Totally get it. But should DC be allowed to hold the 205-pound belt while pretending he hates Bork? It's Brock. Bork Laser. I think he's having a little bit of fun here. Yeah. I get that it is a wasteland of a division, but it seems incredibly clear that he's never going back to 205. Let's face it, if there's one compelling fight DC has there, it's Gustafson. And if he's not going to fight him, I highly doubt he's going to cut that, mage to, that much weight to fight Cy Anthony Smith. What would you gents like to see happen with the 205-pound belt? Ben, there's two different things going on here. Yeah. Number one, Alexander Gustafson dropped out of, what was it, UFC 227? Uh, on the heels of Vulcan Ozdemir being pulled out with an injury. Right. Uh, it seemed like they were trying to find a replacement. Anthony Smith put himself in there. He's like, I want to be the replacement. And then Gustafson pulled out of UFC 227, citing what was de uh, described as, quote unquote, a minor injury. Right. So there's that. In other words, I might be ready to go again soon if you give me the right offer. Right. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, there's that. And then there's now Daniel Cormier's response to it, which a response that was very Daniel Cormier, by yeah, the way. Yeah, really... Really uh, playing the gimmick here. He's not mad. He's just disappointed. He's just disappointed. He doesn't know who you've become, young man. He's he's disappointed with some of the choices you've made. So what do we think about this? Like number one, uh, do we want to talk about Alexander Gustafson backing out of two twenty seven right now, or do you want to save it uh, for round one? Um, okay, let's let's talk about the question: What should happen with the two hundred and five pound belt? Right. Because I agree, it is unfair. To have Daniel Cormier just hold it hostage, just so he can be the double champ for a little longer. It does not seem like he's going to defend it. And it also does not seem like, regardless of what you think of his reasoning behind like him being disappointed in Alexander Gustafson, it does not seem like that's a thing the champ should be able to do, is to blackball you from future title fights with him because he doesn't like how you're going about your career. Right. That does not seem like a power we should give the UFC. He doesn't seem like he ought to be able to just, like, unilaterally ban you. Like, if you earn it, then you ought to be able to get there. And so uh, that that part, I when we ask, what do we want to see happen with a 205-pound belt? If he's not going to defend it, and come on, he's not. 
strip it from him and let's move on with some kind of like a, I know it won't feel like the most legitimate thing in the world, especially while John Jones is still on the sidelines, but let's move on in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, and th- this is one case where Daniel Cormier perhaps, uh, arguably hurt himself by just saying he's retiring on his birthday in 2019. Cause you just kind of do the math and you think, well, if he's, if he's fighting Brock Lesnar, uh, at the end of the year or, or, or you know, mid January, uh, and then he maybe has one more fight in him and he's going to retire. I believe his birthday is in March. Yeah. Or April. I think so. Uh, you just do the math. There's not much time to go down to 205 and defend that belt. No. So, and again, like we talked about, if you go, if you have him go down to fight like Anthony Smith or something, you are driving past the MMA God stoop with your buns hanging out the window, yeah. asking for trouble. You're asking to have him break a hand or tear an ACL or something that makes it so that you don't get your big payday with the Brock Lesnar fight. And the answer about what to do here, frankly, is obvious. And all you got to do is, is uh, look across the aisle for what's happening over there at Scott Coker's Land of Misfits Toys. Wait, are the winds whispering? Tournament! 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 Strip Daniel Cormier, give me a title tournament, give me Lusty Gusty, give me the Sweeto Volkanos Demir, give me Glover Teixeira, give me Alir Latifi, give me Jan Blakovitz. Glover, give me, Glover Teixeira just got beat. Give me Jimmy Matt. So we're not dealing with a deep bench here. Okay. Right. Uh, give me Ovin St. Prue, and give me, uh, obviously, Anthony Smith. And ha- run yourself an eight-man tournament where one of those dudes gets injured near the end of the year yeah. and the alternate who gets put in there, Jonathan Dwight Jones. <laughs> okay. I was just going to ask, who do you want to actually win? Because that's who we should name to the alternate. I mean, that's what would happen, right? Some guy gets injured, John, John Jones gets off suspension, and he jumps in in the semifinals. And all of a sudden, there you go. Well, see, but that's the other part about the question of what do you want to do with a 205-pound belt? Because a lot of the answer for me depends on when can we expect a resolution to this John Jones business? He... Like, Anderson Silva got popped, went through his whole thing, and got the situation resolved before John Jones, like, all in the time between John Jones uh, getting flagged, and still we have no idea what's going to happen with John Jones. I wonder if we would be done with it by now if Jones had not had that disastrous appearance in front of the Athletic Commission. Like, because that where was... he admitted that his lawyer had, like, falsified documents, or his, his, his manager, manager had falsified yeah. documents yes, for him? because that was so bad, where... Jones actually went and admitted to shit that he was not even in trouble for. <laughs> that was so bad that it, it kind of, like, if USADA was looking to, like, for a backdoor way out of this thing, like, he almost made it so it couldn't do that because that was so bad. So I wonder if now we just need to put some time between ourselves and that disastrous testimony uh, and then figure out what feels like a uh, a fitting punishment for John Jones and then, like, you know, get him back in the cage or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it just didn't feel like on the heels of him uh, revealing that stuff to the to the athletic commission that it's not like USADA could come up the next week and be like, well, I guess we're good. Yeah, we're satisfied. Yeah, but I mean, it does make a big difference because if if you're telling me John Jones will be back or at least be eligible to return within the next six months, then okay, go ahead and like let's take the the 205 pound belt away from Daniel Cormier. Let's move on there. Let's get back to how we know things are actually going to shake out, which is with John Jones as the top light heavyweight and then probably moving up to heavyweight at some point. But if you tell me we're going to be another year without John Jones, then fuck it. Tournament, bro. Tournament. All right, let's squeeze one more in here from Vaili Vichy. Nailed it. He or she writes, at the tender age of 30 years old, Stefan Struve 
had his 39th professional MMA fight this weekend. It was kind of, uh, it was the kind of performance we've come to expect out of the skyscraper. He got taken down a bunch, tried a bunch of submissions from his back, and failed to jab the shit out of a much shorter man to prevent the takedowns from coming. Uh, he's won three fights since 2012, and all of those have come against guys who are no longer competing in the UFC. He's still one of the youngest heavyweights on the roster. What can we expect from Mr. Struve now? Ben, it seems like Stefan Struve, while I admit, is one of the youngest, like, high-level or at least, like, uh, brand-name competitors in the light heavyweight division, it almost feels like a given at this point that he will go down I'm not going to say as a disappointment, but I will say as one of the biggest, like, physical mysteries in the 205-pound divisions. Just, like, how can a dude who is legit seven feet tall through, as the emailer here points out, 39 professional fights, how can he not figure out how to use that reach more to his advantage than he's done? Especially coming out of, like, uh, the Bob Schreiber, like, kickboxing uh, background that Stefan Struve has. No, that's what makes him, for me, one of the most frustrating fighters to watch. Because every single time you watch him and you're like, man, if you fought like you realized how much taller and how much longer you are than everybody else, and you actually at least like tried to use that, I feel like you could get much farther, but you're making it impossible for me to test that hypothesis. It's like, remember in the old Pride video game where you could play with Semi Schilt? Mm-hmm. And if you if you use semi shield the right way, it would be hard. I mean, once people got there and took you down, he, they gave him basically no ground game. But if you used him the right way, and you're just like basically poking people with a broomstick from the other side of the ring, it can be a real problem. And it'd be like watching somebody else who does not realize you can do that with him. Except that's a, Stephen Strew's entire career. Yeah. Well, and then like numerous health issues, uh, sort of also sidelined Stephen Strew for a while. Uh, and I mean, I guess the guy who still has time to kind of like turn it all around, but there's already a lot of wear on the tires of Stefan Struve, despite his young chronological age. Uh, and he He's just got does, almost 40 pro fights. Right. I mean, that's... He, he just doesn't feel like a dude who all of a sudden is going to show up and will be like, whoa, yes, Stefan Struve vo- version 3.0. Look out for this guy. Yeah. I No. I've kind of resigned myself to it. And you know what's weird, though, is that some part of my brain still, like, hears Stefan Struve and thinks, like, okay, capital G guy in the UFC heavyweight division. Like, when I was sitting there watching this one, this event, and feeling like I would rather be taking a nap, especially after a weekend of camping. But then I I hear, like, Stefan Struve, Marcin Tybura coming up next. And I'm, like, I assumed that we were at the co-main event. And then realize, oh, no, wait, there's still, like, four fights to go after this thing. Uh, that tells you a little bit something about where he's at right now. Okay, that's going to do it for Listener Mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there... You can go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short and informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. We think it is. But if you don't like it, the good news is it's really easy to unsubscribe. You know, one thing that uh, I wanted to mention, we, we talked before about how patrons of the Co-Man Event podcast, they, we got a kind of an open line. You can always message us there. Uh, let us know if you you got something you want us to, to shout out, something, uh, a project of yours. Uh, our guy Andrew Pearson uh-huh. got in touch with us this week and tells us about a 
uh, Kickstarter thing he is launching, I believe today, I believe July 23rd today, uh, and it's called Switch Kick, which basically is to help you be not addicted to your phone. It's okay. like a phone app. I'm going to be honest, that sounds incredibly useful for me. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought too. Like basically a phone app to help you stop staring at your phone or being on your phone when you actually don't want to be and help you then engage in real life with your friends and family and loved ones. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, this almost sounds like he developed it just for me. Is he trying to tell me something? Where do the kids go if they want to support that Kickstarter? Uh, do we know? You know, we can. He, he sent me a, a press release with the... Uh, the links and everything. Um, they have like a there's a YouTube video for it. Uh, for it's called Switch Kick, just like it sounds, like it's spelled. Uh, we can put the uh, the links and stuff up on our our Patreon, um, or you can go to PhonePsychology.com. It's one of the other things that we see here on the uh, press release. You know what also works? What's that? Go into the woods where there's no cell phone reception. That does work. And just leaving your phone in the car. Although then, like I did. You're driving home from your camping trip realizing you took zero photos. You might actually have to rely on your human memory. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for right now. We will be right back with round number one. So, Ben, it only took Anthony Smith a minute and 29 seconds in the main event of UFC Hamburg to finish off the once great Shogun Hua and not just knock the guy out, but hit him so hard at one point during their exchange that even though I already knew the outcome to this fight as I watched it uh, on delay since we were I was up in the woods and didn't get to see it live, hit him so hard that I said, sitting at this table in this spot, oh, shit, out loud even though I was the only person in the house. So, like, not just knocked Shogun Hua out, really knocked him out. Yeah. Bad. Yeah, that was rough. And I thought you were going to say you already knew the outcome just because you'd kind of done the math on this matchup. Well, that was kind of how I felt going into it. Like, okay, I'm probably going to see something sad happen to your boy Shogun Hua here. And I, even I, though, was still surprised at kind of, I guess, the the raw, efficient brutality of it. Mm-hmm. Because... There's a point where, like, kind of early on in one of the exchanges where he clearly gets hurt, and you think, like, okay, you know, the, you could see the referee, I don't, was it Mark Goddard? I believe it was Mark Goddard. Yeah. Uh, he, he saw it, too, and he was really staying close. Even when Shogun was staying on his feet, you could tell Mark Goddard was like, well, I'm not going to stand here and watch Shogun uh, take a bunch of punishment just because he hasn't fallen down yet. I can tell when the guy's not really in it anymore. Uh, and still, like, just the emphatic pinpoint accuracy of the shots that put him away. And... Like a sad thing, you know, to watch the Shogun Hua being pinned against the fence by Mark Goddard, who's trying to convince him that the fight's over. Yeah. Uh, was it the front kick? Because that's when, like, he, he kind of hurts him with that front kick. I was surprised at Shogun's ability to kind of no-sell the front kick, honestly. Yeah. And Well, no-sold it for about three seconds until <laughs> Anthony Smith rebounded off the cage and hit him with that punch that made me say, oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, so you get the, uh, the demise, maybe, of Shogun Hua here, who really, at this point... Uh, is looking like a guy that we would be friends with. <laughs> like, shows up at the lake and takes his shirt off. Well, it's kind of the the build that Shogun who is sporting. Fairness, he's always kind of had that build. He's pretty small at this point for the UFC light heavyweight division of 2018, uh, which was always kind of a thing. 
for the guys who fought in the pride, quote unquote, middleweight division, uh, which was the like, what, a 200, it was like 202 pounds or whatever it was over in pride. Uh, but they were never the hugest guys in the world. Like even back in the day when Randy Couture and, uh, Chuck Liddell were sort of the, the gold standard of UFC light heavyweights, uh, the Vanderlei Silvas and Shogun Huas of the world were always going to be giving up some size to those guys. But you see him out there with Anthony Smith, who, by the way, coming up from middleweight prior to his last fight, uh, and the size disparity is noticeable. Yes, very. You got the six foot four, two hundred and five pound Anthony Smith, uh, who looks How like. How did he ever make middleweight? That's the thing, man. I have no idea. He looks like a like a prototypical modern day light heavyweight fighter, and then you see Shogun Hua, who does not. Yeah, well, and Shogun, it's one of the things that I guess I ask myself about this is because our. Our temptation is going to be to look at this fight and say, Shogun, please retire before we have to watch more terrible things happen to you. Uh, that feels like the natural like MMA fan impulse in these kinds of situations. And then you think about how many times we've already done that with Shogun. How many times it has seemed like Shogun was shot. And then he finds a way to show up out of nowhere and win three fights in a row, and people are actually talking about him in title contention. Yeah. And you know that that must be what he's thinking too, right? He must be thinking, like, okay, well, they're going to say the same thing that they say whenever I lose a fight or two, but I'll, I'll bounce back from that because I've always bounced back from that. And yet you look at you know the kinds of things the UFC is probably going to think that they can use Shogun for now. Like we, you know, we talked about this once great fighter being used in kind of a throwaway fight card. It seems like that's what the future holds for him here. I mean, if he went to Bellator, he's a marquee guy right away. Yeah. But in the UFC, he's a guy where you want to leverage what's left of the name value to help out somebody who you can actually profit off of in the future. Yeah. And Shogun, who has had kind of an up and down last decade of his career, he's always kind of won a couple, lost a couple, you know, won a couple, well, lost a couple. Uh, and at 36 years old and a charitable six foot one, uh, 205 pounds, like it just doesn't seem like he's the the kind of guy anymore that is going to be able to hang with the like the Anthony Smiths of the world, uh, and you don't see it's not like Shogun who is going to re revitalize himself if he makes a break for middleweight either, right? Right. Like, we're not talking about that as an answer here. Uh, so like whatever happens, uh, it seems like we are really now on the downside of Shogun Hua's late career. Although you also could have said that. Like I said, 10 years ago. Yeah. What about Anthony Smith, though? Because, you know, now he's got two big wins at light heavyweight. Like, basically, this is the summer of light heavyweight for him. Just in the last two months, he's got these, this win over Rashad Evans. He's got the win over Shogun Hua. And you put them together, and it's less than half a round. Yep. But is he, based on that, a instant guy at light heavyweight for you? Or is this just like you're seeing him beat up guys who should probably stop i would describe him as a reasonably fun guy in the light heavyweight division and obviously one of the reasons for that is that this division needs absolutely everything that it could possibly get to create intrigue and drama and new things and new personalities to grab onto he's a scary looking dude yeah he goes out there and knocks people out uh it seems like he has a little bit of a midwestern sensibility about him when you actually get him on the mic uh but like i said it went like during the the first part of the show where we talked about a potential 205 pound tournament for the belt. Like you got to put Anthony Smith in that thing for me at this point, just because uh, with the guys that I read off as potential members 
or potential entrance into that bracket, short of the miraculous return of John Jones. Uh, and Alexander Gustafson would obviously be the favorite, but there's almost nobody in that bracket at this point that I would consider more fun or somebody that I would more want to see what happens to them than Anthony Smith. You know what blew my mind when I realized it? Anthony Smith has more fights than Shogun Hua. Has he been knocking around on the like fighting in Travis Fulton's backyard? For 10 years? Basically. He's fought in a bunch of kind of like Midwest, uh, you know, like South Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, uh, all over that kind of place. Uh, fought on a couple of the Strike Force Challengers, uh, stuff like that. But, I mean, he he does, I think, if you look at his record, present a compelling case that sometimes we are way too quick to think we know everything there is to know about a guy. Like, you see him fighting Strike Force a couple times. Uh, you see him fighting Bellator a couple times. You think like, oh, if he was going to make it, he'd have made it by now. And then, you know, he shows up now. He's not quite 30 years old, has grown into his light heavyweight body. And suddenly you're like, okay, this seems like somebody might be worth getting excited about. He fought six times in 2011. If you're wondering uh, that's, how, that's busy. how Anthony Smith went ahead and wrapped up 43 fights uh, before he was 30 years old. And again, we've seen from those guys that have that many fights, like that shortens the tr career trajectory. Often it does, yes. Uh, so Anthony Smith, considering that he's got a little momentum behind him right now, he seems like an intriguing character at 205 pounds. Uh, he's already got 43 fights. I would say the time is kind of now for Anthony Smith if you are a UFC matchmaker. And it's possible that the UFC knows that because they just basically seemingly put him in back-to-back -back showcase fights against two former champions, which in the world of today's UFC, other than the fact that the Shogun Hua fight goes down in the middle of a Sunday afternoon and you fought over in Hamburg, Germany, that's about as good as you can get in terms of like teeing it up for you so you can knock it out of the park. Yeah. Although, what do you make of, okay, he afterwards asked about, uh, is asked about Alexander Gustafson. You know, he, he said like, hey, he wants Gustafson uh, for the next fight. Gustafson needs an opponent. And then Gustafson says, oh, you know what? Never mind. I'm hurt. Uh, and his comment was, that's pretty ironic, which not, it's not really irony, but does seem to be suggesting that Alexander Gustafson thought, you know what, I am not going to risk my spot here fighting a guy like Anthony Smith. I want a big name fight. Like if I'm going to take the big risk that would come with fighting a dangerous guy like that, I want there to be the big payoff. Right. Uh, I feel like I can kind of understand, especially Absolutely. if you, if you feel like you're already, you know, if you are if you do have a minor injury and you're like, okay, what am I going to do? Hang around to let the UFC tell me at the last minute, here's who we got for you or take that decision out of their hands and be like, you know what? Screw it. My opponent's hurt. I'm hurt too. Uh, let me know when you got something better for me. Like I can understand what he's thinking there. I also, I wonder if it's going to get him to where he thinks it is. Like are you, if you're Alexander Gustafson, are you just hanging around being like, I'm betting the UFC will not be able to come up with any better ideas at light heavyweight, and they will have to come around to your boy Lusty Gusty and offer him something good. I mean, frankly, yes, right? <laughs> well, number one, Anthony Smith is exactly the guy that you don't want to fight if you're Alexander Gustafson right now. Like, Vulcan Ozdemir is on the fringes of a guy you want to fight. Frankly, like, uh, you would only fight him because he's sort of known and he's around if you were Anthony Gustafson. You don't want to fight. Anthony Smith, because he is basically unknown by everyone except the guys who sit around on Sunday and watch UFC Hamburg and incredibly dangerous. So yeah, I understand why Alexander Gustafson would not want to fight him. And frankly, I think it's a pretty good bet if you're Alexander Gustafson that the UFC is not going to be able to find 
Uh, well, at least that the UFC is not going to just be able to write you off in this division. Because if you're about to lose Daniel Cormier as your titleist, whoo, things start looking pretty bleak. Yeah, they do. And especially if you're the guy who already pushed John Jones to the limit once. Yeah, they might be mad at you for a while, but they will probably come back at some point. Yeah. All right, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. I know we've got the joint, the rare joint. Are you fucking kidding me this week? That's right. Chad, uh, saw this on MMA Fighting, who, who got it from the Las Vegas Review Journal. Dana White threw a birthday party for his 16-year-old son, Aiden, yep. uh, this past week in Las Vegas. And basically, instead of just doing the thing where it's like, hey, happy 16th birthday, here's a cake, and uh, a couple of your friends can come over. Yeah, come, come over and swim in the pool. Yeah. No, instead... Rented out a nightclub in Las Vegas. Uh, spent, they say, between like the musical acts he hired, which include like ASAP Rocky and a bunch of like, you know, contemporary like artists that ki- the kids would be really into. But also because Dana White just can't let Everlast go. He got Everlast. Man, you tell, are you sitting over there trying to tell me that the kids are not super into Everlast right now? I don't know if a whole bunch of 16-year-olds are really excited to see Everlast. You're show. telling me that... Um, it's like when your dad is like, oh, yeah, you guys, are, we're all having a fun time at this party. I'm going to put some Seeger on. Whitey Ford Sings the Blues is not going to be in heavy rotation <laughs> in the new Range Rover. Uh, also got him a customized new Rain, Land Rover, which they said, I believe, uh, fewer than a dozen exist in the United States. So that's just a good gift to keep a 16-year-old grounded. And uh, give him a good, humble perspective on life. Also, there's a picture here of him, Dana White's son, celebrating at the club. A bunch of like women are holding up the letters to spell out his name. He is posing with his shirt off and a championship belt that he was awarded during the party. I guess he's the champion of living now? Like being alive for 16 years? Let me say, let me just point this out, though, just before we go any further. That like no part of my Are You Fucking Kidding Me really has anything to do with 16-year-old Aiden White. No, you're, like the you're, are you're born you into kidding, the family you're born into. The are you fucking kidding me here is uh, entirely focused on on Dana White, uh, who, see, who seemingly like is not going to take the opportunity uh, to let his child have a normal childhood. Why would you? So, Why would you do that? For me, that's my are you fucking kidding me. Um, he spent, they estimate, over well over a million dollars on this party. You want to guess what the total disclosed payout for the Tough 27 finale was? Uh, 586. 674. Oh, that was close. You add in bonuses and you get a little closer. You get like almost to $900,000 maybe, but uh, are you fucking kidding me? How used to feel about this if you're a UFC fighter right now? I don't think you'd feel very good about it. I think it's another uh, snow in the driveway moment, if you know what I'm saying. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, on Tuesday night, the time has finally come, sort of, for Nick Newell. You'll recall that for a long time, Nick Newell has been making his case to the UFC, saying even if he was born with just one hand, he is still one of the best fighters in the world. He keeps going out there, fighting a bunch of really good guys, proving it. You know, he had that loss to Justin Gaethje back in the uh, 
the World Series of Fighting Days. But hey, a lot of people had losses to Justin Gaethje. It's not like that's something to be ashamed of. Now, finally, he gets his shot in the Dana White's Contender Series on Tuesday afternoon, really, at the uh, the Ultimate Fighter Gym there in the weird strip mall in Las Vegas. Takes on 4-0 Alex Munoz. And again, we're faced with that same kind of dynamic where the goal here is not just to win. But you have to win impressively enough that Dana White wants to offer you a contract, or apparently sometimes he'll offer you a spot on the Ultimate Fighter, or he'll just offer you more Dana White Contender Series fights. You never quite really know what's going to happen, but it's not the usual thing where just winning is enough. What are we expecting out of Nick Newell here, and why are we doing it this way? Yeah, the Nick Newell, or I'm sorry, the Dana White Contender Series is kind of blossoming into its own animal at this point, especially because now we have Greg Hardy uh, allegedly, like sort of a Dana White Tuesday night contender series fighter at this point. They say he's going to get some more fights, but they will be on the contender series. Enter Nick Newell, a guy who's 14 and one and like, uh, the former world series of fighting lightweight champion, the former XFC lightweight champion. His most recent fight was in LFO or LFA, LFO, by the way. Awesome band from the 90s. Yeah, no, we all remember LFO. Uh, XFC and LFA, at least like some high level independent organizations, world series of fighting. Uh, now the PFL, like essentially one of the major leagues, albeit maybe the most low profile of the group. Uh, he's obviously a guy that even fighting in the shark tank of 155 pounds, if you wanted to just put him in the octagon and say, Nick Newell is here and we're going to see how he does, that would be fine. Like it's hard to say that he doesn't totally deserve fine. that treatment. Yeah. Instead, you do, as you said, get this uh, Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series bout against a guy who at least Nick Newell has a ton of of experience on. Uh, but again, like I thought you asked the, the right question there. Like what, what's the point here? What's the play for having Nick Newell uh, fight on the contender series and whether or not that gives the UFC the easy outlet to kind of be like, well, we gave him a shot and he didn't like cut the mustard. Well, yeah. What I wonder is this seems like kind of hedging your bets in a way, but I'm, I'm curious if this is meant to kind of protect the UFC or if it's meant to, protect fans or to get fans used to the idea that maybe like, Hey, if we put him through the Dana White's contender series, he wins a fight, looks impressive. Then we sign, we sign him to the UFC. We have a built in kind of defense because the UFC seems really worried that people are going to say like, Oh, look at what you're doing for ratings. And like, uh, you're, it's completely unconscionable of you to take this guy with one hand and throw him in the UFC and have him get beat up for your profit. The UFC seems very scared of that possible criticism, which is not one that you hear MMA fans making, uh, right. but I can see how maybe they think, all right, the wider mainstream sports world, once they get wind of this, they would make that criticism. And then we we want to be able to defend ourselves against it. And if we say, hey, he did it all through the ranks in these smaller organizations. He did it in the contender series to prove himself. He earned the spot here. Uh, and no one can say that we were kind of like rushing ahead into this. Or if it's meant to just get it so that fans are like, okay, I've seen this guy. I'm used to it. I, I, whatever shock value it may have had is gone. I, I accept that he came up through this usual process and now he deserves to be here. It would seem like a weird move to try to just condition fans to a fighter who physically appears different than what we are used to, just because, uh, we've never really done that before. We've never really had a conditioning period, uh, with any other fighters in the past. Uh, and we've seen some shit. If you are a fan of this sport, you have seen some shit in the octagon. People who didn't belong there, guys wearing one boxing glove. Uh, we have, we have witnessed a lot and especially like 
it seems if you are like a hardcore fan of the sport, you probably know who Nick Newell is already. Yeah. Uh, so it, like, I would be surprised if this had anything to do with conditioning MMA fans, uh, to be ready for a fighter who only has one hand, uh, to fight in the UFC. It seems far more likely to me that the UFC just feels squirmy about this for one reason or another. And in fact, like juxtaposing him with Greg Hardy seems almost too easy to do. Like the two things at this point that the UFC feels a little bit uh, concerned about in terms of, of image are bringing on a, a guy who is widely broadcast to be uh, a, a domestic abuser and also a guy who was born with one hand. So like that's weird though. That's weird company to be in. If you are 14 and one professional MMA fighter, Nick Newell, who I think from like a, uh, uh, resume perspective absolutely deserves to just be in the UFC. So like this placement on the Dana White Tuesday night contender series seems obvious to me as someone that the UFC had to have a meeting over. Like we need, we need to figure out what we're going to do about the Nick Newell situation. And again, like I'm not sure what the end game is. I'm not sure what the strategy exactly is here. Uh, but it's just one more thing that seems like kind of a weird commentary on the UFC as a business at this point. Because Nick Newell has been around enough, he's had enough experience where like, in my opinion, you could easily just throw him into a lightweight fight in the octagon. And even if he lost, even if he got really badly beaten, I don't know that it would necessarily, uh, be the sort of public relations end of the world for you that, it, you know, you might imagine. Yeah. I agree. I also, I mean, I guess I'm most curious about how it's going to play in the lens of the Dana White Contender Series because, like we said, it's not always enough just to go out there and win your fight there. And those guys are definitely conscious of it. If you talk to the Dana White Contender Series guys, they know, like, hey, if I win, like, basically any time in the third round or if I win a decision, it, it's almost like a loss because your chances of getting in getting a contract in the UFC go way down. So you really got to go out there and show out. And to me, I think like the worst case scenario here might be if Nick Newell goes out there, wins, and the UFC just decides, like Dana White just decides, ah, uh, not quite impressive enough. Yeah, that would definitely be uh, the weirdest outcome, right? It would be the if Nick Newell beats Alex Munoz via first round submission, let's say, and doesn't get a UFC contract, that would definitely be the thing that makes you go, hmm, from yes. this entire situation. And it, like one of the more interesting uh aspects of all this is that Alex, like if you just look at the matchup, Nick Newell versus Alex Munoz, Alex Munoz seems like the kind of guy Nick Newell should beat. He's 4-0. Uh, he's fought on a couple of different independent organizations. Uh, he's got one submission win, two uh, TKO, KO victories, and one split decision win. Like we don't, I don't know a lot about the guy, frankly, but like just looking at it on paper, it seems like this would be like if you were going to have a fight on the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series that you wanted Nick Newell to win and look good doing it, this seems like the kind of opponent you would give him. Yeah. Well, and hey, if he goes out there, he gets a shot, he loses, then what else can you say? But at least you, you got your opportunity there, and he got his chance to to make whatever he could out of it. Uh, to me, it just seems like if you if we're doing all this as a way to kind of like ease into it, and if he does what he's supposed to do, which is win the fight, then I don't see how you don't sign him to the UFC after. It'll be interesting. We'll have to see what happens. That's going to do it uh, for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. 
All right, Ben, we are now officially 30 events into the UFC on Fox run. This is UFC on Fox 30 coming to us July 28th, this Saturday night, from the Scotiabank Center out there. Oh, no, no, the I'm sorry. Dome. The Scotiabank Saddle Dome. Yeah. I don't want to shortchange it. You've seen that one from the air. It looks like a big saddle. From Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Main evented by the rematch between Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier. These guys fought. At UFC 211, and their their bout was a, a, a you know eventually declared a no contest after Alvarez landed a, a, a an illegal knee to the downed Poirier. So nobody is complaining, I don't think, about getting this matchup a second time. Uh, and as as is usually the case, you know, not not nothing to sneeze at here as far as the supporting cast goes with Jose Aldo against Jeremy Stevens, Johanna Jacek versus the Tiny Tornado Tisha Torres, and uh, Alexander Hernandez versus uh, Olive Aubin Marcier, who we still got to send those uh, fanny packs out. Those are going out this week, along with the bobbleheads from the uh, the latest book club. But of course, the main event here is Eddie Alvarez versus Dust- versus Dustin Poirier. What are you looking forward to here besides two guys that are going to go out there and and throw them haymakers until somebody falls down? Well, that that is mainly what I'm looking forward to. I also feel like this is one of those fights that really. Uh, is going to be a dust settles kind of fight. And afterwards you're going to see who is the person who is really worth getting excited about at lightweight because Eddie Alvarez, I like kind of everything he's been doing lately. Yeah. You know, both just in terms of like actual in cage accomplishments, you know, had that, that great fight with Justin Gaethje. Uh, and then when he gets his chance to talk on the mic, he does a good job of, Showing that he understands how this shit really works, but also remaining like a kind of like charismatic, likable guy where it doesn't feel like he's trying to pick his spots too much to like, which you know always draws the ire of fans, but it also feels like he is not out here to just get manipulated and run headfirst into a wall whenever you call on him. So I really like seeing these two guys finally get back together, especially like, you know, after Dustin Poirier was just saying like, hey, I'm fighting Eddie Alvarez. Like that, I'm not asking for it. I'm just telling you what's going to happen, stuff like that. You know, I I do want to see this fight again and see like an, an actual conclusion, not only because of like the history they have and the way the styles match up, but also has actual immediate relevance for the division. Like it's kind of that perfect trifecta there. I'm a little bit surprised that we're even getting it as a uh, a Fox main event because it almost feels like too good for that. Yeah, uh, and again, like it's a matchup nobody's going to complain about. I agree with you about Eddie Alvarez. He seems super likable and has, frankly, seemed that way for a while. Uh, even while his his thing was he was kind of trekking all over the world, uh, fighting tough guys outside the UFC. Uh, what do you make of the lasting impact of this loss to Conor McGregor back at UFC 205 on Eddie Alvarez's career? Because Eddie Alvarez is still out there, like you said, doing good work on the mic and kind of talking like that didn't happen. Like I saw that today he was on, I think it was Ariel Hawani's new show over on ESPN talking about how this fight against Dustin Poirier is for the only title that matters. The title of who is the most violent guy in the lightweight division. Yeah, that's what you're doing against Justin Gaethje too, right? Right. Yeah. But, but yeah, who you won. So I assume you retained the title. Yeah. Lineal toughest guy and the, yeah, most violent guy. But that the- approach is also sort of like, we just saw you get knocked out in the second round by Conor McGregor in November 2016. Like, not that long ago, we all remember it, but Eddie Alvarez is just going to sort of forge ahead as though that was not a thing. Well, I guess you have two options here, right? You can forge ahead as if it was not a thing, or you can be the guy who says, like, 
my ultimate goal is to get that one back. Right. Is to get the rematch. And you're not going to. Like, you're just... Getting Conor McGregor back in the cage at this point is already such a Herculean task. And then making sure you're going to be the guy. Like, so many things have to happen before you're even in the conversation as being the guy who he comes back and fights against. So, I kind of agree with the decision not to dwell on that and just return people's attention over and over again to the fight that you lost. Right. No, yeah. Now that you explain it that way, I feel like... Uh, I totally agree with you. I feel like perhaps Eddie Alvarez learned from the mistakes of Jose Aldo. Right, exactly. Because Jose like, Aldo's the guy who did that. Right. He seemed like he became completely obsessed with Conor McGregor after losing to him in 13 seconds, losing his featherweight title, which, understandable, <laughs> yes, maybe. That's going to haunt you a little bit. But it bit. also feels like that, and maybe this would have happened anyway, but that loss to Conor McGregor totally def- has defined the rest of Jose Aldo's career to this point. And I don't think that he did himself any favors by sort of being so obsessed with trying to get the rematch. If you asked him today, he would probably still be itching for the rematch. And it, like, it did cast a pall over the rest of his career. Maybe Eddie Alvarez making the smarter political move here to just sort of move on and now focus on, you know, a new business. So to speak. Yeah. Well, and speaking of Jose Aldo, here you see Jose Aldo going up against Jeremy Stevens. And what looks like it could be a fight to kind of determine some important stuff about the featherweight pecking order. Is it kind of weird that how much Jose Aldo is flying under the radar here? How like I mean, if you would have said a few years ago, Jose Aldo versus Jeremy Stevens, and it would be Jeremy Stevens who people were pretty sure had the brighter future, that would have seemed insane. I ad- I have to admit at this point to having been completely wrong about almost everything about Jose Aldo's career. Because, you know, coming out of his stint on the WEC, where he was the 145-pound champion there, I said, this guy is going to be a superstar for the UFC. Just watching him completely decimate people, just destroy people in the WEC as the champion there, landing double flying knees on Cub Swanson and shit like that. Uh, And remember, was basically just anointed. UFC men's featherweight champion when the UFC absorbed the WEC. I thought, this guy is going to be pay-per-view gold. People are going to tune in to watch him just destroy people. And then things kind of flatlined from Jose for Jose Aldo from there. He was like a great champion, but he wasn't a big uh, draw. He wasn't a big pay-per-view star. Uh, I thought he was going to beat Conor McGregor. He got knocked out in 13 seconds. And now he's 1-3 in his last four fights. I'll be at the last two of them to Max Holloway, so still obviously a high-level fighter. So you asked me that question, like, just know that whatever I'm about to say is going to be wrong. Okay. So maybe whatever whatever you feel like you want to say, why don't, why don't you do a George Costanza and say the opposite of that? Well, well this is what I want to say. Like, considering where they both are in their careers, ain't nothing wrong with Jose Aldo versus Jeremy Stevens. We will no. all gladly watch that just to see what happens. But it does feel like an important fight in the life of Jose Aldo. Like, you got to win this one, guy. You really do. eh, Don't know. Well, and see, you mentioned, like, the Holloway fight, because that is interesting, because it seemed like it would be really easy to go with the Jose Aldo is shot narrative after those. But then, I mean, it's Max goddamn Holloway. He's really good. That's what we have learned there. So... Is it just that, like, all right, you run into a couple tough fighters kind of on the downslope of your career, but you can still beat 95% of the other featherweights out there? Or is it, like, a physical decline plus maybe a crack in some of the confidence plus a couple people showing you here's the book on how to beat Jose Aldo? Which Max Holloway – I mean, the Conor McGregor fight was over so quickly – 
how do you really learn anything from that? But Max Holloway, especially that second one, where you could see him being like, all right, when you can bait Jose Aldo into stand, planting his feet, standing there, throwing with you, and you're confident you can stand there and you can take those punches from him, you can start chipping away at him. And a guy like Jeremy Stevens, if I look at that second Holloway-Aldo fight, I'm thinking, all right, I know what I'm going to do now. It's just a matter of if the guy can stop, if the guy can resist doing it with me. And I don't think he can. Like, I, it makes me wonder, like, did we see the best stuff out of Jose Aldo or does he cruise through a guy like Jeremy Stevens and 10 other dudes who look just like him? Right. Well, that's, I mean, maybe that is the most interesting aspect of this fight is considering where will each of these guys be if they win. Like, if, I, like I said, if Jose Aldo loses to Jeremy Stevens, I feel like that is very bad for him in terms of his career prospects moving forward. But Ben, what will we think of Jose Aldo and where will he be if he just decimates, just destroys Jeremy Stevens? Just old school vintage Jose Aldo knockout. Will we, will we think Jose Aldo is back or will we slow play it a little bit more? And on the flip side, if Jeremy Stevens beats Jose Aldo, is that, does that stamp him as, you know, potential number one contender? To the second part, yes. If Jeremy Stevens beats Jose Aldo, then you got to be like, okay, whenever we figure out what's going on with Holloway and Ortega, then Jeremy Stevens is the next guy right there. And like maybe the guy who is on standby, ready to step in for whoever can't go there, since it seems like somebody always can't go. Uh, as for Jose Aldo, if even if he goes out there double flying knee knockout of Jeremy Stevens, I might still have to see a little bit more information before I'm ready to get on the Jose Aldo he back train. We've been hurt once. Already been hurt by Jose Aldo. Been hurt so bad. Uh, all right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we will close out the show for this week. Ben, we talked about this guy a bunch during this round, but this week I'm just saying we're kind of whiffing on a pretty big MMA storyline right now, and that is Conor McGregor has his day in court on Thursday. His oh, really? second appearance in the New York court for uh, the bus attack for lack of a better way to describe it. Uh, and they'll remember, he, his first court appearance was last month in early June, uh, and super sports agent Adi Attar, who, by the way, looks and sounds like a guy that you would want to actually have as your sports agent in this sport, which is not everyone, not everyone in this sport no, who no, is an is agent not. is doing that. Nope. You see Adi Attar and you're like, this guy knows what he's doing. This guy, he's professional. He does it right. He walked out of the, the court on June, whatever, June 9th, something like that, saying we hope to have this thing wrapped up by July 26th during the next court appearance, which is this Thursday. What happens if, if, if Conor McGregor rolls into court, plea deal accepted, walks out with this thing as a done deal? Then where are we at? Are we going to get some Conor McGregor fight news next weekend? Or do we just start all over with the UFC in terms of negotiations? I'm just saying, I don't know. But I'm, I'm excited. I'm just saying you might be getting a little ahead of yourself here. Well, let's do I mean, if Conor McGregor handled his business and the next day the UFC was like, all right, Conor McGregor versus Habib Nurmagomedov, here it is, wouldn't you be like, okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, speaking of people who are back, you hear about Chris Lieben? You hear about your guy, the Crippler? He's back in a manner of speaking. We mentioned it in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, but Chris Lieben coming back to do some bare-knuckle boxing against dot, 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 the poet Philip Baroni. I mean, I hesitate to say this, but it's almost the perfect CME matchup. 
the crippler versus the poet in, in bare a bare knuckle. knuckle boxing match. I'm in, I'm gonna cross <laughs> myself right now. Uh, I'm just saying. I read about it in Stephen Morocco's story on MMA Junkie, wherein uh, he was basically like, "Hey, Chris, didn't you have a debilitating heart condition that forced you to retire from the sport when you wanted to fight for Bellator?" Uh, and he claims that basically this heart condition has been fixed by, well, for one, sobriety, but also a number of different powders. Turmeric is in there. I got that. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of other stuff that have just like basically revitalized him. Meanwhile, Phil Baroni uh, got the offer and accepted it, he claims, while on the toilet. I'm just saying, already it seems like this is a matchup where everybody is getting to do their stuff. Yeah. Everyone's doing their stuff out there. I'm just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC on Fox 30. And then, Ben, it's going to be start start to be time to start just considering UFC 227, Dillashaw versus Garbrandt 2, which goes down August 4th. Oh, boy. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Do we know where it's happening? Have they set a place Wyoming. For- Oh, it's going down in Wyoming well, again? Wyoming so far is the only state proven that it will regulate bare knuckle boxing. This one, though, is a different event than the other one. It's not the same promoter. And I asked... It's a different bare knuckle boxing promoter? A brand new one. And I asked the old one, like, if he had any connection with these people. Uh, his response was that he was not even 100% sure that they were actually going to put on an event. But they seem to be acting like it. So the new people, who yes. signed Chris Lee versus... Bill Barone.